if the government has a license to treat people differently, depending upon their identity, then they now have a license to punish and reward as they wish. Bruce Party is the executive director of Rights Probe and professor of law at Queen's University in Canada. One year on, what is the legacy of the trucker convoy protests? Why have so many people bought into the idea that a society and its problems must be managed and controlled by so-called experts? Some people thought that the law would save them from all of this. But the law is a product of the culture. A document is not going to be able to resist the culture as it changes. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Bruce Party, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So we first sat down to chat about a year ago, and we didn't end up publishing the interview. Right. It was about the truckers' movement, of course, and just in the days as we were about to publish it, and I forget the new name for it, but what I remember is the War Measures Act was pulled. Right. 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 And so we didn't, I didn't get to have you on the show. I'd be, right. uh, I guess it's a year, a year and a half now since, since we talked. Mm -hmm. And I've come to believe that the truckers' movement was probably one of the most consequential protests in recent history. And I just, I, I, I want to get your, your thoughts on this. Oh, I agree. I agree with you. And not, not just in Canada, but probably internationally. Now, of course, it wasn't the biggest protest we've ever seen. Quite modest in size. It wasn't the most eventful protest in the sense that they drove up and they parked and there they were and that's all they did other than dance in the streets and sweep and clear snow and feed the hungry. But the truckers have all have, have done us all a huge service, I think. They were protesting vaccine mandates, of course. And that alone would have been enough. But what it really turned into was, was, the, was the first significant sign in Canada, which is, a very, which is a very polite, compliant country. The first sign from ordinary people that they didn't trust their government. Government, Canada is the land of peace, order, and good government. I mean, we, we emerged out of uh, the revolution in the U.S. And the Canadians were the ones that didn't want to, didn't want to revolt, wanted to remain loyal to, to His Majesty. And peace, order, and good government sort of runs through the history of Canada. And here you have a bunch of truckers who took it upon themselves to drive all the way across the country, and it's a huge country, of course, basically to give the message to the government, we don't trust you, we don't accept your authority, we don't accept your legitimacy. And that is a significant thing to say. I, I've interviewed a couple of young men who had embedded themselves in the protests and to document it. Mm -hmm. And one of them had previously been a, a political organizer he was telling me, and I think we have this on camera in an interview, um, that, that he asked them, well, so what are your demands? You know, and, and he realized very quickly that, oh, we're, we're going to Ottawa. We've got to stop the mandates. He was shocked to discover that this was such a grassroots movement that these people didn't even really have demands. 
unlike some of right. the protests that we've seen, you know, for example, the George, many of George Floyd protests we've now learned had, you know, millions of dollars mm. in backing, highly mm. coordinated, mm. highly, you know, very, very specific goals, you know, uh, perhaps diverging from the surface goals. Anyway, you get you, you yes. get the idea, and here yes. we have something that yes. was so grassroots. It was organic, spontaneous, disorganized in a good way. You had to try and figure out what was going. I was in Ottawa for a good period that the protest was going on, and it was difficult to know who was calling the shots, even. And if you talked to one trucker and then the next, it was that it would. There was basically no um, agreed upon structure or leadership, and that was part of its charm. It was really a spontaneous thing. They all sort of. Some of them just picked up and got in their trucks and said, we're going to Ottawa, and then the, the thing built across the country. So what is the aftermath here? Clearly, something changed, basically on those days when we were filmed our interview, and suddenly we, we thought, you know, maybe this is going to be codified by this Canadian Senate, and my goodness, what would that mean? But suddenly it was gone. Right. And I think there was uh, a strong ripple effect across the world and maybe and is that the reason you call it you know con consequential possibly internationally well it's hard to know exactly you know why governments rescinded the mandates i mean it's you make a good point that that some of them happened to be rescinded not long after the end of the convoy you could make the case that one thing had a lot to do with the other could be could well be on the, on the dark side, let's take a step backwards. I mean, COVID seemed to come on us suddenly. And suddenly we were in a different world. And the rules were different. And the powers that the government had were different. They seized more powers than they've ever had before. And it seemed like a sudden overnight thing. And I don't think that's the case. I mean, it, it, it did come upon us suddenly. And it was an abrupt change. but. In my view, these things had been building for a, a long period of time. In a, in a way, the COVID experience, I like to think of it as, as, the, as the triumph of the administrative state. Um, people like to ask this question, you know, what, why did the government fail so badly during COVID? Why, why did they allow civil liberties to be crushed? Why didn't they, weren't they more effective at the measures that they put in? Why did it fail? And from my point of view, from the perspective of this machine that we call the administrative state or the nanny state, I don't think that it thinks it failed. I think that the administrative, thinks, administrative state thinks that it succeeded beyond its wildest dreams because it finally managed to do that which it thinks it exists for, which is to manage society. It, 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 it managed to manage all of us in a more extreme way than it ever has before. And of course, we've had an administrative state for many, many decades. But it had never been as extreme as it was during COVID. I mean, people were literally being told to close their businesses, not to, you know, not to go to work, not to, not to walk through the park, not to leave their homes. It, it, was, it was an extraordinary thing, and things were happening that I think that a lot of people just would not have contemplated as possible in an earlier time. But the thing about the truckers is they have at least questioned that consensus. And that questioning is why I think the government saw it as such a threat. Now, it was no threat in literal terms. I mean, there was no violence. There was no weapons. There was no storming of parliament. There was nothing going on 
inside the convoy other than sitting in the trucks and playing in the snow. And, and, and honking, I remember. And honking. Yeah. honking went on for a while. When I, when, I, when I arrived in Ottawa, there was honking going on during the day. It ended as evening fell. Um, as the days went on, there was a, uh, an application for an injunction brought to court, and the court granted the injunction. And after that, there was basically no honking. Every once in a while, you'd hear somebody breaking the rules. But there was basically no honking after the injunction. So they were, they were compliant with the law. Now, the one thing that the convoy did that was unlawful was park. They, they, were, they were engaged in unlawful parking. The threat was that you have a, a, a whole bunch of ordinary Canadians now coming to the government and saying, we don't approve of what you're doing. We don't approve of the system that we're in. We don't believe in your legitimacy. We don't believe in your authority. And I suspect that's why they ultimately decided to, to uh, trigger the use of the Emergencies Act, which, by the way, was not designed for that purpose. That's not the kind of emergency that qualifies for the use of the act. If you are in political trouble, that does not qualify as an emergency. And that's the kind of trouble that the truckers were putting the government in. Well, so what do you make of this inquiry and its findings that happened, uh, you know, I guess earlier this year? Right. So I listened to a lot of the testimony, as many people did. The, the evidence given basically said that there was no violence to be found inside the convoy. In fact, one of the OPP witnesses uh, said that he found the, 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 lack, the lack of violence in the convoy to be shocking. I mean, if you, if you have this number of people doing this kind of thing in protest, you would, the implication was you'd, ex, you'd expect some violence, but there wasn't any to be found. And yet, I, I, and I, and I wrote this at the time, I had no expectation that the inquiry would, uh, would, would throw the government under the, under the trucks, um, simply because the purpose of these inquiries is as much performance as substance. I regard them as ritual. It, it, it provides the appearance of, of accountability without actually providing accountability. And so the question being posed and answered at the inquiry was not the same question that's being posed and answered in the applications challenging the invocation of the act. Those challenges have now been heard by the federal court, haven't got an answer yet. We'll see, we'll see. Well, I think this is the appropriate time to, to talk a little bit about you know, what you do and how you've come to see this. And you know, you've been watching rights basically for decades. This has been part of what you do. And, uh, you know, actually, I, I first came across you when uh, B, Bill C-16 was going through the legislative system. You know, what I think of as the com compelled speech bill. I don't right. know, I can't remember what it was. It was an amendment to the, human, the Canadian Human Rights Act. And it was incorporating uh, uh, gender identity into the grounds that were being protected from discrimination. And interestingly, so the amendments did not include the word speech. It didn't say you're going to be required to say this. But the argument that Jordan Peterson and I and Jared Brown and others were making at the time was, if you include this based upon interpretations of similar provisions that have been given by human rights commissions elsewhere in the country, 
This is going to require you to use the preferred pronouns of people who say, please don't call me him. I want to be called her or Z or they or whatever the case may be. And so it would amount to compelled speech because the interpretation of using the wrong pronoun would be regarded as discrimination. So on that grounds, we said this is not a good idea. And of course, that, that, uh, that, that objection did not rule the day. It went through anyway. And so we have in our human rights codes across the country, both the federal one and, and provincial ones, we have these grounds uh, of, of, of prohibited discrimination, which, which more and more are now being used um, to suggest exactly what we suggested they would be used for, which is to say, I'm sorry, you, 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 you can't choose the, only, the, the pronoun that you're going to have come out of your mouth. Someone else can direct you what that word is going to be. And, and that is not a country in which free speech exists. That's just not on. It was fascinating to, to hear those arguments back then. And to be frank, I didn't really grasp it at the time. Right, and you, 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 and Jordan and others were, you know, seeing something, and because of this work that you've been doing. So, so tell me a little bit about that work and how you started, how you ended up at Queen's University doing Bloomberg. Right. So I, I started my academic career um, focusing not entirely, but uh, largely on environmental law. Through the lens of environmental law, you can see a lot of the problems that we're having on a larger scale broadly across society. You can see the, the dilution of private rights. You can see the disappearance of certain kinds of due process. You can see the erosion of what we may have thought were our constitutional rights. This, the whole thing is sort of veering off the track in, in my view. It's a very interesting microcosm or case study of the larger legal picture in which the ground really is, is moving beneath our feet in ways that we don't suspect. So let me give you one example. The Charter came in in Canada in 1982. It, it, it's sort of the Canadian version of an American Bill of Rights. Yeah. I remember we were celebrating it in grade school. So Right. And, it, yeah. and it, it, is, it has turned out to be less than one might have hoped for partly because of the way it's worded, but also because, largely because of the way it's been interpreted. So one of the sections in the Charter is Section 15. It's the equality provision. And it has a, it's a two-part section. And the first part says, um, basically, that everybody's equal before the law, without discrimination. And then the second part is an exception to the first part. The second part, and this, this exception does not appear in the American version, the second part is an exception, which essentially allows affirmative action in certain circumstances. The first idea is that everybody has the right to equal treatment under the law. That means that the same rules and standards apply to you as everybody else without regard to who you are. The other version of equality is that people of different identities are entitled to equal outcomes. Now, here's the basic proposition. Everybody is different. Everybody is different in an infinite number of ways. So, if you apply the same rules and standards to everybody, by definition, they're going to end up in different places because they're all different. So, if you insist 
that all the identity groups end up in the same place, that means by definition that you must apply different rules and standards to them. So you have equal treatment or you have equal outcomes and you can't have both. And over this period of time, Supreme Court of Canada has basically said it's the second and not the first. If you do have an actual equal rule, that applies to everybody. And that actual equal rule produces disparate outcomes, well, that won't do. That means you have to change the rule so it's different for the different groups. And we've seen that, uh, for example, from the Supreme Court of Canada in a case where you had, this is a, this is a, um, a case challenging an RCP, R, RCMP program. They instituted a program whereby their members could essentially work part-time if they wanted to. And along with that part-time option, they provided a pension plan that more or less resembled the full-time pension plan in the sense that your pension reflected the hours that you worked. Now, this is a voluntary program. If you were a full-timer and you wanted to do this, you were able to do it. If you didn't want to do it, then you didn't do it. Now, as it happened, more women than men chose part-time. And as a result, more women than men had lower pensions than the people who were doing full-time. And on that basis, a majority at the Supreme Court of Canada said, violates Section 15. Same rule, both sexes, different outcomes, can't have it. Why is it a problem? Why is this a problem? Whether it's a problem depends upon what you value. Um, if you are a social justice warrior, this won't be a problem at all. This is the way it's supposed to be, because that's the whole idea of social justice. If, though, you want protection from your meddling government, what you want is the right to be treated the same as everybody else. And if the government has a license to treat people differently, depending upon their identity, then they now have a license to punish and reward as they wish. Sometimes people confuse equality with freedom. And those two things are different. People sometimes look to equality to, to provide freedom. But the, the, the idea of equality of treatment is really the, the right to, to be subject to the same awful um, dictatorial laws as everybody else, whereas freedom is the right not to be subject to those laws. And sometimes people pursue freedom by looking to equality. But nevertheless, e equal treatment is part of, if you like, the rule of law. Um, if you are going to adjust your rules for every particular case so as to provide the outcome that you want, that means you don't really have a rule at all. You know, uh, Hayek said that one of the elements of the rule of law was rules fixed and announced beforehand. That is, they can rule us, the government can rule us, but they have to tell us ahead of time what the rule is going to be so we understand what it is or we can understand it. And, and govern ourselves accordingly. And, and then they're held accountable to and those then rules, they're accountable, right? Exactly. Right. So, but what's happened in the era of the administrative state, not just with this equality thing, but, but in a much broader way, is that we don't have those. Instead, we have um, decision makers, uh, both in the executive branch and all of these agencies and so on, but even in the courts, making decisions as they go about things. 
the, a lot of the agencies and the bureaucrats and the, and, the, and the professional experts see themselves as being there to solve social problems. And in order to do that, you need flexibility. You need to be agile. You need to be able to respond to things. You need to be able to manage here and there, to adjust as you go along. That is the opposite of the kind of rule of law that Hayek was talking about. You can't do that if you're going to have a rule of law. And you know, the administrative state and all its people are, are inclined to see the rule of law as an obstacle, an inconvenience to achieving the kind of society that, you know, that we can have. And what they're missing is that that inconvenience that the rule of law provides, that obstacle, is not just an inconvenience. That's the point. That's the point. It's there to prevent you from managing things on a case-by-case, one-off basis, making up things as you go along. That's what it's supposed to be there for. But more and more, that idea is, is, is eroding. And so we have the alternative, which is you got a whole bunch of people in this enormous machine of the administrative state solving or trying to solve, not, not doing very well at it, but trying to solve social problems, you know, one thing at a time, making things up as they go. You know, this is uh, a, a very profound, what you're describing, because this is, you know, I, I kind of see the response to COVID, the pandemic, you know, however, and people have different views on how it all happened. But, you know, basically what you're telling me here is that that response, and this is something that happened near globally, right, is a kind of a crystallization of one particular philosophy of governance, which is some kind of, I'll call it benevolent in quotes, technocracy, ruled by yes, experts. Yes, absolutely. Right? It, it, it is the crowning, it's the crowning achievement so far of that belief, the belief that in order for civilization to to carry on and to be successful that we need experts in a bureaucracy managing things so that things don't fall apart. And that is a belief that I think, I'm afraid, is probably widely held. And widely held even across the political spectrum. Uh, e e even those political actors, Republicans in the United States, for example, who, who don't approve of over-regulation and too much bureaucracy and too many taxes and overspending. I think if you challenge them, a lot of them would still say, well, we need an expert bureaucracy. We need an administration in order to make our way through life. And the opposite view is, look, this is just a belief. It is just one of the ways of doing government and our experience with it over the past while, and especially during COVID, shows it doesn't work. I mean, if anything else, they have shown during COVID their incompetency. They've shown that they're captured by other interests against which they're supposed to be protecting the public. If the failure is so obvious during COVID, what makes you think that they'd be any good at very many other things? And I think we can go down a whole long list of things that, they, that we think they're good for and find out actually that in many of these situations, the biggest danger, the biggest risk to us all is the meddling that the state is able to do. You know, just on this point of the significant and repeated failures of the, these policies that, you know, had, you know, were kind of instituted and profoundly altered 
civilization. It's going to sound grandiose, but I know, I know we agree on this. It, it, not everyone thinks, and, and as you alluded to earlier, as you said earlier, not everyone thinks it was a failure. No. In fact, some people believe to this day that, that these things were a success despite overwhelming evidence, you know, incredibly well documented. Mm -hmm. that, that, that phenomenon is something I struggle with. In many ways, the most disappointing thing about this experience during COVID was the fact that a great many people supported the regime. And they didn't seem to have very much appreciation for the aberration that it represented. I mean, if you thought of the way people thought about their society before COVID, the idea that the government should take it upon itself to tell people whether or not they can open their businesses, go outside, walk through the park, and all the other ways that they directed the activities of all of us, it just, it just wouldn't have been thinkable. I, 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 even the authorities themselves, I would expect, would have thought, you know, well, we'd like to do that, but we simply can't do that, is people won't put up with it. But they did, they put up with it, and they wanted more of it. And, and that is the, the uncomfortable realization that, that the people, the, that, that there are other people in your country who don't think of their country in the same way that you do at all. And then you wonder where it is that you live. You know, but this wasn't just a Canadian phenomenon. As we say, you know, this is and something, something very interesting, right, about the United States, something I've come to, to notice, right, is that the United States have almost like a collection of countries with quite different, mm -hmm. some states have dramatically different philosophies than others. Mm -hmm. You know, and some states would be very similar, actually, to, to the Canadian mm -hmm. model mm -hmm. of approach, and some, you know, few, especially at the very beginning, at a very different, and then sort of increasingly mm -hmm. uh, afterwards. Um, and that's one of its great strengths. Mm -hmm. for, for my money, the fact that you have, you know, if I can put it this way, different tribes in the US is a strength because then you actually, you actually have real diversity then. Not, not the pretend diversity in the equity, inclusion and diversity, you know, social justice thing. You actually have diversity in the sense that you have different places and different people with very different ideas about what the right thing to do is. That's great. And I mean, we, we have that to some extent in Canada, but there are pockets here and there of people as opposed to the, the, the real um, battles that are going on in the US, which I think are very healthy. So one of the criticisms that Canadians like to, um, to lodge against the US, or at least think this way about, is to say, well, you know, they're, they're full of conflict and they're so political about everything, and they have fights about their Supreme Court and the philosophy of this and that, and their Congress is always fighting about things and so on and so forth. And in Canada, we don't have any of that politicization of our institutions. And that's nonsense, of course. The fact of the matter is, in my view, that the politicization of our institutions is even more extreme because there's no opposition. So the thing that I find also difficult, and this is something I've been probing a lot, right, is that even today, right, where there's a lot more evidence, a lot more evidence has come out, and I think it is more broadly known, 
about the, the costs of the various policies that were implemented, the human costs, yes, right? Yes, yes. There's still a significant portion of the population that doesn't want to know or isn't able to accept. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to have that discussion that you're talking about if, yes. if that's a phenomenon. That's not just a phenomenon in Canada, of course. Of course. Right. Of course. Right. Well, you know, there's, those discussions have to be had. And the, and the evidence and the data that you're referring to need to be discussed, need to get out into the public realm. I mean, they're out there, they're, they're available, but I don't think a lot of people are, are accessing them. But there's a more fundamental uh, question for me, which is this. There's, a, there's, there's something of a danger that citing the bad results becomes the argument for why the measures were wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case that I would make. I would make this case. If the lockdowns had worked better, if they had not caused such harm to people, if the vaccines had worked as advertised, or at least closer to as advertised, if they hadn't had such adverse effects, if the facts had been wholly different than they were, the measures were still wrong because they took people's choice away. Even if the authorities happen to be right, you still can't tell people what to do. It's still a free country. It's still their medical decision. It's still their business. It's still their risk. It's still their children. So even if the situation were entirely different and we had competence, in our public health authorities. For me, the situation does not change. You simply cannot do this to people and call yourself a free country. Well, because your view is, you, going back to the two views, right, that, that we discussed earlier, you're firmly on one side, on the equality of opportunity. Well, well, no, I'm, 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 on, I'm, on, I'm on the equal treatment side, but it's even, I mean, now we're talking about liberty as much as equality, right? So, so I mean, you could, you could make this case. You could say, well, we're going to be equal about it. We're going to, we're going to make everybody lock down. And we're going to make everybody take a vaccine. That's equal. And sure, I mean, that's equal for sure. That's not free, though. It doesn't leave medical decisions to the individual. It doesn't leave the assessment of your own risk to the individual. Um, and so it has less to do with equality and, and more to do with whether or not you're serious about your civil liberties. Um, you, you can have a, and, and I criticized before the fact that the administrative state that we now have is looking to be um, uh, more and more incompetent and captured over time. Uh, but even if that were not the case, I still think you shouldn't have one in the way that we do. Because what happens is they take it upon themselves to manage us. And being managed is, in a sense, the opposite of being free. Now, note how they managed us. They managed us during COVID in a very clever way. And we have a, we have a charter, we have a constitution, we have rights in the constitution. Those charter rights, most of the time, were basically useless during COVID. And for, for certain valid legal reasons because the government didn't always 
infringe them directly. Instead, they managed society by saying, oh, by the way, everybody, this is your choice. You can decide whether to get a vaccine or not. We're not going to make you, but if you decide not to, there are consequences to the choice. You might not be able to fly in a plane. You, know, you might not be able to have a job. Maybe you can't go to university. Yada, yada, yada. But, by the way, it's not mandatory. So they're doing indirectly through their management of society what they would probably not be able to do directly. And it's just one of, one of the examples of how you can squeeze through the gaps of the rights in the Charter in a, in, in a, in a very effective way, as they did during COVID, that, that allowed civil liberties to be lost without infringing charter rights. So Bruce, you know, as you're talking here, you're putting the fear of God into me here. I'll explain why, okay? So I'm, I'm re reflecting on how there's this, I probably intrinsic or inherent feature of bureaucracies where accountability is diluted mm -hmm. to the point where it's unclear who's actually responsible. Mm -hmm. So the combination of this type of management, as you describe practice, and you know, diffuse or accountability, which essentially usually means no accountability, mm -hmm. that presents a really kind of foundational threat to humanity. Does that sound too, sure. too dire? That's part of the design of this thing we call the administrative state. Let's just back up a step in constitutional terms. You know, both the Americans and we have this concept in our constitutional order of the separation of powers. Now, the Americans have a much um, more explicit one than we do. The idea of separation of powers, again, is there to protect us. So if you want to conceive of the rule of law in terms of its opposite, which is the rule of persons. We, none of us want to be subject to the rule of a person. Like we don't want to be subject to the rule of a king who has absolute power, and we don't want to be subject to the rule of any particular other person who has the power to decide what's gonna happen. So we divide up the powers between these three branches. So the legislature can make rules, but it makes the rules without knowing the situations to which the rules will apply. The courts take those rules and they apply them to those particular disputes, but they didn't make the rules. And they're supposed to be um, committed to the rules as drafted by the legislature, so they can't make it up either. And the executive branch is supposed to be able to do nothing. It's supposed to be powerless except for those powers that the legislature gives it in the statute. Right? So that protects us all, because no one of those people or branches can decide on their own what's going to happen to you. Except that this idea of separation of powers, although it still exists as a principle and lauded all the time, in practice it's just heading out the door. Because what's happening is these three branches, which are supposed to be checks and balances on each other, are all of one mind about the necessity for an administrative state for the experts and the bureaucrats to be in a situation to be able to respond to social problems and make it up as they go. So what happens is the legislature 
passes statutes that give broad rulemaking power to the executive branch. And the courts defer to the decisions of the executive branch. And the legislature even gives the executive branch the power to adjudicate things, you know, in tribunals or, or, or boards or commissions and so on. So you have the executive branch now making rules, deciding cases, and executing. They're doing the three jobs of the three different branches all in one branch. And, and of course there's no accountability because you don't know who's doing what now. And they're all in on, they're all in on it together. I'm not saying they don't quarrel amongst themselves. They, they surely do. Um, but, but in the big picture, mm -mm. they're all of a mind about how civilization has to be in order to carry on. And I think that idea is wrong. So now what I'm thinking about is uh, you know, the role of media and all of this, which of course is very important because the media is supposed to, I guess, you know, share with everybody what's going on. As close as we can get to an approximation of reality or the truth of a situation, right? Right. Um, but that's also changed. Mm. Uh, and and, and I, I can't help but think that the same kind of management view, I hadn't really thought of it this way before. I really I find it very interesting. Mm. The same sort of manage, this management view is what it seems like many mm. media, mm. not just in mm. Canada, subscribe to, mm -hmm. as opposed to the find the truth, give it as best you can mm. you know, to people and let them figure it out. Mm -hmm. Well, let me, let's just acknowledge this. If, if I, th I think if you are a person that professes a lack of belief in the idea of having an administrative state, then you are a heretic. I mean, most people have grown up under an administrative state. That's what they think government is, by definition. But nevertheless, there are facts and there are, there are truths to be told. And I take your point, and I agree with it, that in many ways during COVID, the, the, the role of a great deal of the media appeared to be to promote the, the narrative. You know, everybody, you know, we're in this together. You should do this because that's what the health authorities have said. Okay, well. That's just being a propaganda arm for the government. How about asking some questions, like hard questions, about what it is they're telling us to do? On the other hand, we should recognize this about the media. They're not a government institution. And for that reason, they're basically like the rest of us, in the sense that they're allowed to say whatever they want. And free speech does not depend upon telling the truth. So we, it's, it, I would hesitate to pull any media outlet up for publishing something that happens not to be true, because that's our job. Our job is to read and read other things and take in as much as we can and decide you know, who's closest to the truth in our view. The real problem is not our opinion that certain media outlets are talking off the top of their head. It's that the government's now involved. It's funding, it's directing, it's, it's preparing to censor, it's, it's, it's really going to town online now in terms of managing our online spaces, online feeds. And, and that's the real problem. It's the government interference 
in the job of the media. Okay, so this is the perfect moment to talk about Bill C-18 and I guess the, the suite of legislation that relates to managing information and content and so forth. C-18 for the government is becoming a disaster, right? Because the, the attempt that lies within it to get the big tech companies to pay Canadian media outlets for the, the links that they feature on their platforms is totally backfiring because the big media players are, not, are saying, nope, we're not doing that, so we're just not going to feature any Canadian stories. And that's having a bigger detrimental effect than not having been paid in the first place, right? So one might make this argument, that it's actually advantageous to a Canadian media outlet to have their links and so on featured on these platforms because they're directing a greater audience to your website, for example. And the strategy that the government decided to pursue with C-18 so far is falling flat on its face. But this, this bill is not even the biggest problem. The, 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 the bigger problem probably is the one that was, is following it, the, the, what has been referred to as the online harms bill, which is not, not in process yet. But the government has promised over and over again to bring in a bill to, to prevent the expression of harmful speech online. That's just a license to censor. Even the idea, even the idea, let's go further. Even the idea as we have in our law, the idea of hate speech is a problem. Now, let's distinguish between two different kinds of speech, okay? So, in section two of the charter, we have the right to free speech. We immediately know that's not literally true. It's a very vague statement. If you go up to somebody on the sidewalk and you say to them, give me your wallet or I'll stab you, okay? Well, that's speech. It's also an assault. And no one's arguing that that kind of free speech should exist because you're, you're basically attacking somebody. You're threatening imminent violence. That's not part of your free speech. So immediately we know there are things that fall, there's speech that falls outside the free speech guarantee. So the question is, well, you know, where, where are the boundaries? Okay. But if the boundary is, well, you can't say something that hurts people. Well, everything you say hurts somebody because people don't agree about things. The thing you do need is to be able to say things with which people disagree. So we have a hate speech provision in our criminal code. You know, that's problematic. In a free country, I mean, you don't want, you don't want to encourage this. You don't want to say it's a good thing, but in a free country, for the, the fact is, people are allowed to dislike each other. And they're allowed to say that they do, because they're free people. And, you know, that's just part of the chaos of living in a free society. And if you try to make sure that nobody says anything that's hurtful to somebody else, okay, well, you got a different ball of wax altogether now. If you try to, I'll use your word again, to manage. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Man people manage your speech, manage your relationships, manage your respect. Man it's like it's a, you become a managed people. You know, Bruce, as we're talking about a managed society here, or managed populace, <laughs> um, I can't help but think back to a recent conversation I had with Matt Taibbi. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about 
what he called, you know, the death of the American spirit. Mm -hmm. And that's something he was saying that no legislation could actually help with. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you solve the the issue of this encroachment of this man, you know, increasingly managed. Uh, 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 I was going to say managerial class, you know, administrative <laughs> class. Right. I can't help but think, in a way, this death of the American spirit. The American spirit is that thing that's sort of central to free societies because it's the American idea that gave birth to all these, mm -hmm. you know, democratic movements and ultimately democracies around the world. As I've been learning over the past years. Um, so, so what do you think? Has this, has this idea just had its time now? Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very dark question, isn't it? So during COVID, some people thought that the law would save them from all of this because the law is written down. You know, it's in black and white. The document is there. I can read the charter or the like. Men didn't. And People don't know what happened. But the law, the law is a product of the culture. And I think the point is very, quite right. I mean, you, a document is not going to be able to resist the culture as it changes. It's just going to take the law and carry it, carry it away with, with it. And so people are the ones who are making the law, applying the law, and if those people have an idea that's contrary to what other people think the founding idea of the country is, then the country's going to change. And yeah, the really dark part of this is that although we perceive this Western liberal democratic existence as the way things are supposed to be, the natural order of things, and we perceive an aberration from it, and we think, some of us think, oh well, this is just a pendulum. You know, we're, we'll swing back to normal soon enough. In the big historical perspective, it might be, though, that this period of Western liberal, liberal democratic um, freedom, maybe that's the aberration. Because human societies through time haven't been that. How do we know that that wasn't the aberration, that that was the blip? And maybe now we're going back to normal. That's, that's not a nice thought. I'm hoping it's not that way and that the period that we're in can be fixed, can be corrected. We can go back to that American ideal, not just in America, but more broadly, but uh, it's, it's going to be a, a challenge. You know, it's also made me understand why it was, you know, it wasn't just sort of America that's always been, let's say, under assault from every dictatorship out there, especially the powerful ones, especially the, you know, Soviet Union, communist China, it's the idea. Yes. Right? Yes. It was much... Yes, it, yes. And that, going full circle to where we started, that's the reason that the trucker convoy was a threat, because it expressed an idea, an idea contrary to the prevailing order, the, the, the order that has become. So Bruce, you know, as we finish up, um, this, it always comes back for me to the fact that we're 
we're very influenced by the people around us, mm -hmm. right? So it might be a broader cultural trend as you describe, but what I'm also observing is that, that what we perceive others around us believe, that actually influences us. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, so that makes us subject to manipulation. Mm -hmm. when, we, when someone can manufacture that perceived con consensus view, mm -hmm. and it, but also just organically it makes us susceptible. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that, that view, um, you know, we, you, we could go in a different direction. Right, if, if we believe that people around us actually do believe that freedom is the right way, that, that uh, liberty, that individual, individuality is important. Mm -hmm. that oh yes, it's quite possible. The, one of the challenges though that, is that, that that idea, the idea of liberty, individual autonomy and so on is, is actually quite an abstract idea compared to the alternatives. The alternatives are very concrete. You know, you should do this. This is right. This is wrong. You know, we should have rules about this is about right and wrong. Um, much more easily, easily grasped than the abstract idea about how liberty will be good for you, even though it means that you don't know what it is you're supposed to do. So, yes, I, I agree with your point. And if if there is in fact a critical mass of people who do are of the mind that this is the right way to have a country, then great. But there's some slogging to do to get to that point. So any thoughts on how to get to that point? Mountains are climbed one rock at a time. And there's a, there's, there's a, a, a lot of little bits, rocks and crevices to, to, to get up. And so it takes a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of time, making a lot of arguments. You just, you just have to keep plugging away. And I, I know that's not, probably not inspirational. I don't think there's any magic bullet Except maybe, and this is again, maybe, maybe a, a, a dark kind of encouragement, but the, the worse things get in terms of our managed lives, the more likely it is, hopefully, that people notice things aren't going well. And maybe eventually that will make more people open to the argument that this is not the right way to go. We need to change tracks. Well, Bruce Party, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Oh, listen, the pleasure's been mine. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you all for joining Bruce Party and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.